we have this imagery before us uh, of, of running, uh, and I just love it. It's been so impactful in my life, and it's a question that I'm daily asking. What does it look like for me to run hard, to run well? Again, this imagery of a, a cloud of witnesses around us that are cheering for us, that are rooting for us and waiting for us. They've passed the baton on in this our portion of the race, to run hard, to, to live as pilgrims and sojourners in this land, to have an, an impact with the gospel to those around us, and to stand up for, right, for righteousness, and to endure and again persevere to the end. So it's just a beautiful imagery, it's been so helpful. But there's a, a, a key understanding, let me say it like this, that how well we run the race, that is both individually and, and collectively, or in other words, our Christian experience and again, how well we run the race is going to be largely determined by whether or not we understand and believe that when we came to Christ, we came not to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. That may not make any sense to you right now, but that's exactly what I want to talk about this morning in Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 12. And it starts with this word, therefore. So you always have to go back and see what this therefore is, is trying to refer to. So this cloud of witness, the heroes of the faith, again, running the race with endurance, most immediately gives the idea that, that he, he shares that God, or because God loves us, God's not wanting to, to punish us. He's not want, wanting to, to beat the rod on our backs because he gets some kind of sick pleasure out of it. But he's actually wanting to help us. To help us run well. So he teaches us. He instructs us. And again, sometimes it's necessary to correct us. To, to correct our form like a coach would do. To correct our habits, our discipline. To, to bring discipline into our life so that we can run well. So having understood that, verse 12 says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. So what's he talking about here? And these two phrases, hands, are literally wrists that are limp and knees that are feeble and weak. And both of these guys, we know, these are athletic metaphors. There's an imagery. You can imagine someone who is running a, a marathon or maybe just running a mile, depending on your shape. You know, but someone who is running and they're exhausted and they can't run another step. They just can't do it. They stop. What is the posture of someone who just is just at an end? They're, they're bent over. They're breathing heavy. They, their knees are weak. They're going limp. And the word strengthen is literally a word that means to straighten up, to get them to stand up. So basically, to regain their strength, to straighten up so that they can continue to run. They're going to run with endurance. They're going to finish the race, strengthen them up, straighten them, and so that they can keep going. 
And then it says here this, this, this idea of straight paths. Again, that, that's an imagery as, as well. It doesn't make a lot of sense to us just in the, in the culture that we live and just this modern uh, wonder of the world of highways and sidewalks that we take for granted. But it's actually very common in the scriptures. You see it a lot, especially in the poetical books. So in the ancient world, their roads... They weren't very straight. They weren't good roads. They were often, they were windy. They were very hilly. They were full of rocks, sometimes boulders. You could easily uh, just get lost or come around an embankment and see that the road was washed out. So the best option, back in that time, the best option, like really like the best path would be a path that was straight, not hilly, free from uh, debris and, and rocks and obstacles. And so it's this imagery that is used often. And you think of, for example, this is a, a common verse, you guys. I'm sure you have this memorized. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? He will make your paths straight. So it's a very common imagery. It is, it is the best path possible, something that is straight, something that is level. It just goes and you can see where it's going. It's the imagery that especially someone who's already wounded, someone a straight path would allow them to heal, would allow them to recover rather than going around and being wounded further. So one of the things that's very interesting in verse 12 and 13 is everything is the plural. And I kind of referenced it already this morning, but it's plural. It's not just talking about an individual race. I think we, we do this to our own detriment. We focus so much on your race, Nate, and your race, Callie, and Victor. And we, we focus on the individuals, and we forget that it's, it's talking about this race that we run together. This is a, a team Race, and we have to realize it changes everything. It changes so much when we realize, guys, that we are a team running this race together. There are some of us, and I mentioned it again earlier, so I'm repeating myself, but there are some of us um, uh, among us whose wrists are limp, their, your knees are feeble, they're, they're weak. Some of us are, are just wondering and, and just. How am I going to make it another week? And there's people who have gone on in the Christian life for years. Just how, how I don't know how I'm making it. And we praise the Lord. He's sustaining us. But they're not sure they're going to make it another week. There are people who are broken. There are people who are discouraged. There are people whose children are rebelling. There are marriages that are falling apart. There's people who are dealing with chronic pain. And they are suffering. There's all kinds of this stuff. Everything I just mentioned. This stuff going on in this room this morning. And so understanding realizing this is not an individual race. This is a team race. Changes things. We are teammates. We're running together. It ought to matter to us how those around us are faring. It ought to be important to us. 
It's important that, guys, and I look at us as the people who have been here from the beginning and even just in our transition and change of name and just kind of refining and identifying who we are as a, as a body in Christ and what God has called us to do in this community. That's something that we are, are still deciding and still praying about. Us, it's so important for us first few families to create a culture to provide an environment so that future, as the Lord brings new people in, future people can be strengthened to run the race with us. We know, it's so important for us to get this and again, create an environment where other people can come in and can find healing, can find support, can find uh, camaraderie so that they can run the race well too. This is, this is the heartbeat. I'm going I'm to go off to the side a little bit. But just, this is the heartbeat of, of, of why we implemented home fellowships. Some of you guys are taking advantage of them. Some of you guys are not. But this is what we're trying to accomplish. We don't do it just so we can have a meal together. I know I've joked about that. But that's, that's just a joke. The intent is to realize, hey, there are people near me. Like we, we set this up geographically. There are people near me who need help. And in this home fellowship, I have opportunity. It's a place where I can go to give help. And when it's my turn, receive help. For people to neglect that, for people to, to just cast that aside and say, I don't need that. You are missing some fundamental things of what it means to be on a team. And you're selfish. You're selfish. There's no I in team. It's in these environments. It's in these home fellowships where I've seen it time after time where people get what they need and they say, you know what? I have what it takes now to make it another week. I hear more often than not in these home fellowships, people saying, hey, we are in this together. We're going to get through this together. We're going to cross the finish line together. I hear that phrase and that type of camaraderie in home fellowships a hundred times more often than I hear it in our Sunday morning gatherings. You hear it in the home fellowship. That's why we do this. And so this is not something that we just created. It's something that we see here and starting in verse 14, there's detail related to it. It says, pursue peace with all men. Very similar to what Paul says in the book of Romans. You guys are probably familiar with this. He says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. But the word pursue is a term that we would use to describe as a hunter pursuing his prey. He's going after it. it it's not a passive verb. There's action. This is not sitting around and hoping that if I just keep my nose clean or if I could just stint, take, you know, take, take care of myself and uh, stay in my lane, everything will be okay. That's not what it's talking about. It's an active pursuit of peace. And this word, this Greek word for peace is the closest thing we have to the, the word shalom. It's, we, we've studied this before. The, the shalom is this idea of flourishing. Not just having peace, but prospering, of doing well, flourishing. It's a mutual flourishing of creating 
actively an environment that is making paths straight. Actively pursuing and creating a place where people aren't going to keep getting hurt. Where they can flourish. Where they can heal. Where they can receive what they need to run strong. We're told to actively pursue that. Again, in the common thing that we have, what we've been raised up with, what our culture says is, is good, just stay to yourself. You've got what you need. You don't need it. Again, if that is your opinion, if that is what you are, how you are operating, you are missing it and actually being disobedient. You are not pursuing peace with all men. You are not pursuing the flourishment of others. Now think about, again, about this. Think about the culture we live in. People are so angry. I was driving around this morning, on, or not this morning, this week, on the square. And, and I was coming around, I'm just, just, I'm not speeding, I'm just doing it, and coming on the square, you know, and once you're on it, you don't yield, you go. And so I was, I was making, I was staying to the left, and there was this big semi-truck and he's coming up, and for whatever reason, he had hoped I'd turn off, or he'd hoped that I'd yield to him. I came around the corner. I didn't see him. I'm just going to keep going my way. And I see, though, all of a sudden, he started shaking up and down. And he's, like, furious. And he's yelling at me. And there's cuss words after cuss words. I can, I can see him. I can feel him. I cut him off for whatever reason, even though I had the right away and I wasn't speeding. And then I'm like, wow, this guy is really upset. And so I, I, I finally do take off. I was on the way to the annex to get my new license plate for my truck. And I look back in my rear view mirror. Because this guy's so mad. I'm thinking he might be following me. Like he, I'm ready to like get out. I'm going to try to think about how to dissolve you know, or you know, resolve this, this peacefully. And, but he turns and I see on the, the side of his truck. You know what's on the side of his truck? It's a question from God. Where will you spend eternity? <laughs> it's a Christian truck driver who just cussed me out, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, eh, but I don't blame him. I don't think any less of him. I'm just saying this is our culture. We are so angry. We be, we have become, it has become so toxic. It's just so out of control that every week people are abused. Every week people are bullied. People are pushed around. It's actually, again, a culture. We, we, we refer to as strength. Don't be the victim. Be the bully. You know, and we, we start to celebrate that. That's the only way you're going to get ahead if you put other people down. Guys, where can people find an environment that is other than that? Where are people who are, who are just tired of that? And they're worn out and they're beat up. Where can they find somewhere other than that? Because we have to understand that as Christians, we simply cannot continue in that kind of environment, in that kind of culture. We've got to stop the cycle. Someone's got to stop the cycle. We can't take part of that in any way. That's not our calling. We don't need to add to the tension. We, we should not be adding to the conflict. We are called to pursue peace. To create, again, to, 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 to define that. To create an environment where people can flourish. Where people can be strengthened. 
where they can heal and they can run the race with endurance. Another way to think about it, guys, life is hard enough as Christians creating unnecessary conflict. You may be strong enough to take it. Well, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to, I'm going to be assertive. You know, we, we use words like this to, to really, again, uh, I guess promote, you know, essentially the same thing the world's promoting. But, but you may be strong enough to take it. You may be strong enough to, to stand up against it. But what about those around you? What about those who, who are, will experience and suffer the collateral damage? What about the people around you? So the idea, guys, here is, are we, or let me ask this, how do we create an environment where people can flourish? Where they're not going to get beat up anymore. Where they don't have the fear of, of being beat up. And it says we pursue peace. We pursue shalom. We, we, pers we pursue it like a hunter pursuing its prey. Some sort of animal. The next phrase says, and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. And we've talked about this. The writer of Hebrews is using the word sanctification different than the Apostle Paul. The Paul tends to use it as an ongoing process. And there's, there's, there's some truth to that. The writer of Hebrews, though, is using it as a noun. Something that is. It is true. It is fact. It is current. The moment, guys, we trust Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, we become citizens of a new city, a heavenly city, of a kingdom. And we're called to give people a glimpse of that world, to live in such a way where people see what God is truly like, where they experience righteousness and love and mercy and grace. We're called to give people a glimpse of this world to come. And so we're called to be set apart. That's what it's talking about, set apart. We are other than the world. We are different from the world. We don't live like the world is our home because it's not. We are going to a better place. And that's where our treasure is. And so we don't get caught up on the things of the world. We don't care about the things of the world. We know them to be temporary. We are looking forward to the eternal. We're supposed to live like that. And that is sanctification. We understand, guys, the anger and the abuse and the bullying and everything that goes on in our culture. It's all around us. But we are called to be people of God. We're called to be different. Called to create something other than... And that is our witness, that is our testimony, and there's something about us, something about that other than, that people look and they say, that's peculiar. I want that. I desire that. That is the truth. People do say that. It's just they never see it to be able to say it. They do desire that. And I, 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 I we'll stop here, but I have been asked, why are you different? I want that. I have been asked that. It's not, a, it's not a fallacy. You can live in such a way. Then that's the opportunity where you articulate the gospel. You have to articulate the gospel. But you can live in such a way, following Christ, not caring about the world. People will turn and they will look and they will ask. Because our souls are desperate for it. 
Verse 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's a wonderful statement. Absolutely wonderful. God's grace is enough. Guys, the world system, this system that we've been raised in and trained in and operate in, we work in it, is all about competition. It's all about comparison. It's, it's a system based on performance. You get ahead by performing. You get recognition by performing. You do or you don't. What breaks us loose is this thing called grace. And on the basis of God's grace, everything becomes different in our life. I'm not viewing myself as more, and I'm not viewing myself as less because of God's grace. Less than anybody else or more than anybody else. Guys, under, understanding grace means that whether you've been a Christian for 50 years or for five hours, in God's sight, you are equally accepted and favored. That is something that is so hard for us. Because even in the church, we tend to bring in this performance-based culture and we elevate those you know, we give them people the terms of elders. Yeah, there's respect there. But I don't care if you've been a Christian for 40 years. You are no more spiritual. You are no more favored. You are no more accepted than the person who just walked off the street and gave their life to the Lord. That's grace. And it's scandalous. There's nobody more loved. There's nobody more than. And on the basis of grace of God, we come equally in need in the grace of, of the grace of God. Th again, think about how, how different that is from our culture. Think about all the anger, all the hostility, with all the abuse, all the bullying, all the put-downs. How many people in the room would say that and you don't really feel loved and you don't really feel respected in our culture around us? You don't really feel accepted. You don't really feel looked up to in this community. I feel it all the time. I don't have a truck that's new enough. I don't have a career that's respectable enough. I don't have a house that's good enough. There are, there are things our culture promotes and respects. And most people struggle with that at some level. I, I have my own struggles. But there, it's out there. And I would guarantee there are people in here who have experienced that as well. We struggle, I think we all struggle with that at some level. But is this place, in this room this morning, a place where we have understanding that we are all equal before God? Or has the world penetrated this room? Is this this room? Are we, are we creating an environment because of the grace of God that we equally come before God in need? Equally. Is this a place where people can flourish? Where they know they aren't going to be bullied? Where they know they're not going to be pushed around? Where they're not going to be rejected? Where they're not going to be put down? Where they're not going to be judged according to the, how they dress? They're not going to be judged according to what car they drive or what job they have or what house they live in. None of that matters. In Christ, our house, our home, our vehicle is infinitely better than these. Guys, our place needs to be other than. It needs to be a place that is different. That there is enough grace for everyone. 
And where there's no more thinking, I'm more accepted than you, or contrary, this is equally as false and prevalent. There's no more thinking, I'm less accepted than you. Don't let your heart and your mind deceive you. So that's what it means. No one comes up short of the grace of God. And if we don't do that, if we don't create that environment, look what he says. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many defiled. If we don't do that, if we don't create this people, rather, they're just hurt more. And the cycle continues. And they're rejected more. And they're bullied more. And what happens with, is that there becomes a root of bitterness. Bitterness is basically anger turned inwards, turned inside. And it becomes, it creates bitterness. The anger turned in, turns into bitterness. And the bitter root produces bitter fruit. It just adds to the breakdown of our culture. This, this, this heavenly, holy, sanctified culture. It breaks it down. And so if we don't take this calling seriously to, to create a place where people flourish, bitterness, it says, is going to creep in because people are going to be getting hurt. And when as people get hurt, that creates bitterness. And bitterness leads the soul to all kinds of trouble and defilement. It contaminates the soul. We see it. It comes in. It festers. Contaminates. It breaks down relationships. It breaks down just just love. It, it, it starts to give in a, a paranoia where you can't trust anybody. And so no, you're no longer intimate with anybody. And before long, you don't fit in with anybody. You don't know anybody because you put up so many guards that came from the root of bitterness, but came from the root of art, of anger turned inside. And when that happens, we start to make really bad decisions. It says, verse 16, that there be no immoral. It'll say no immoral or godless person. But that's that word immoral is the word that we get pornography. It refers to any kind of sexual sin. One of the unique guys' things, and I've studied this, we've seen it, uh, I've taught on it, we've tried to do just, just all sorts of stuff around this to help people, but it, it, the unique things about sexual sin is people turn to that behavior when they are hurt. They turn to that behavior when they're wounded, when they're bitter, when they're angry, when they're struggling. It's not a coincidence that the more angry and the more toxic you have become as a, as a culture, the more the sexual behavior gets out of control. Some people turn either to sexual relationships, people in pain, when bitterness has come upon them, they seek a release, they seek to, to mask it, they seek to, to feel differently, and so they, 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 or, or they turn to uh, pornography. Where it's secret. They, they think it's secret. And, it, and it's just them. But they, they are seeking to have that root of anger or that root of bitterness resolved. It's all because of that pain inside. That's what he's referring to. That there be no immoral or godless. And we would just use this word as secular. Person like Esau. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards... 
When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it for it with tears. If you're not familiar with the story, Abraham had a son. Isaac, Isaac had a son, Esau. Esau was the firstborn, and in that culture, he would have had the birthright. The firstborn would receive that blessing, or at least the majority of the inheritance. So God made a promise to Abraham, and it was going to go uh, through Isaac and then to Esau. But Esau was not interested in the promise. Doesn't mean necessarily mean he was a bad guy. He just he wasn't spiritual. He just he wasn't interested in that. He didn't buy into that promise to Abraham. And so he comes in from hunting. And he is starving. And his brother Jacob has made a stew. And Jacob basically says, I'll tell you what. I'll give you a bowl. And he's been pursuing it. And I said, I will give you a bowl of stew in exchange for your birthright. Now I'm sure Esau thought, well, Isaac's got nothing to pass on. It's no big deal. So he made the deal. But what's interesting is the very next day, you know what happened to Esau? He became hungry again. That meal wore off. It was just a momentary satisfaction of his hunger in exchange for his inheritance. So eventually then it comes to the day when, when Isaac's about to die. And he's going to pass on the inheritance that was promised. And Esau, guess what? He changes his mind. He says, man, I, I actually, I, I do want this. I, I changed my mind. I want it now. But God sovereignly works. He superintends. He makes sure that, that the promise from Abraham for, to Isaac goes to Jacob. Now, there's a sobering picture, guys. When we become angry, when we get upset, when we become bitter, when we are hurt, we start to experience the kind of contamination that leads us to make bad decisions. And we start to make these bad decisions. We start to trade that which lasts, that which is eternal and lasts forever for the temporary satisfaction that is in the moment. It's a foolish thing to do. But it happens when our soul becomes contaminated. When we live day to day, when we live for the things of the world. Then we get to the finish line and we change our mind. And we're like, wait a minute, I want a do-over. I made a bad decision, but now here, I want a do-over. Guys, we only get one shot. We get one shot at life, and it's like at the end, I want to think about this again. Oh, I want to redo. There is no do-over. That's the kind of imagery of the story of Esau. Again, this is what happens when people get hurt. When we don't create an environment where we can flourish together, when we can keep what's important and eternal in the forefront of our mind, where we're fixed on it and looking to Jesus running our race, we don't create a, uh, an environment that helps people do that, we start seeing people continuing to get hurt, and they start making bad decisions in our community, our fellowship <coughs> breaks down. Now the foundation of this conversation, all that he's been having right here, is really built on what we've been talking about throughout the book of Hebrews. And he's going to give a recap of it real quick. It's this Old Covenant verse the new covenant. Everybody say new 
covenant. That's this new covenant that comes in and it changes these things. So we're going to read verse 18 through 24. It says, For you have not come to a mountain. Means he's talking about Mount Sinai. That can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound as such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. So this is just a recapturing of what happened on Mount Sinai. You guys aren't familiar with this? Again, you can go back, you can read it. I'm going to give a real brief update. But just when Moses went up to the mountain and basically he entered into the presence of God and he received the Old Covenant, it was an experience that was of sound and fire and fury. And it was just, there was trembling. It was, it was awe-inspiring. It was terrifying. And there was this moment again of absolute terror that came upon the people. And God made a boundary around Mount Sinai. And he told the people that they couldn't come any closer. He said, you can't. You can't, as sinners, just stroll into the presence of God. You will die. This is terrifying. But God took it one notch further. And he said, by the way, if even an animal crosses this boundary... They, it will be stoned. It will perish. And the people, they just said, we can't take this anymore. This is just too much. We don't want to hear this anymore. They were absolutely terrified. And Moses himself was trembling and terrified of just this awesome moment. And that's capturing the Old Covenant. And that's why the Apostle Paul, what does he refer to the Old Covenant as? We've said this before. It's a ministry of what? Of death. It was a ministry of condemnation, of, of fear. The presence of God was going to dwell within the Holy of Holies in their tabernacle. And no one could come into that presence. Nobody could, except for a high priest once a year. And there, there was this sense of awesome holiness of God that would strike people dead. And it was fearful. And we didn't want to come near it. And it was, it was this covenant of bondage. And as long as that defines the culture, it will never really be a place for flourishing. The flourishing of grace that he's talked about. None of that will happen as long as that remains the culture. Verse 22 says, but. And if you write in your Bibles, this is a great big but to circle. <laughs> but you. <laughs> Us as Christians. We don't come to the Mount Sinai. There's something different. We don't come to Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion. So Mount Zion was the mountain upon which Jerusalem was built. The temple would sit there. It was the place of crucifixion. It was the place of resurrection. But all of that it was yet figurative. As it was the, the heavenly Zion. Ultimately, the heavenly Jerusalem. It was just this glorious new place says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads, which just means thousands and thousands of angels. So it's this picture of this heavenly city. And there's just thousands and thousands of angels and the living God is there. 
It's just glorious. And it says to the general assembly. I would suggest when we read general assembly, well, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? I mean, I'm thinking of like something boring and stale, like like the United Nations or something. You know, it's just like this. It's going to be a meeting, or maybe you're thinking the business meeting. You know, it's just something boring and dry. That's an unfortunate translation. Because, when we, again, we hear something like that. We, we, we think of all these things, like we're coming together for a meeting, like, like the Southern Baptists do or the Methodists do, you know, in their, in their year convention. And it sounds administrative. It sounds boring. But that's not the word here. It's a Greek term that is referring to the grand festival. It's something they would do at the Greek Olympics. They would come together and it was just a joyful celebration. There was, the runners are running and the people are gathered. There's thousands and they're loving. They're wanting to live it up. They wanted to party. They wanted to uh, just enjoy this time together and celebrate this wondrous moment. So if you think about this, this image, again, we were talking about us running the race. And this image, we are running it, and we're coming into this, this grand just cathedral or, or coliseum, I mean. And there's a cloud of witnesses. This running imagery, it fits. It fits so nicely here. To the myriad of angels, to the general assembly or the festival, and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So that's us. This is, this is the already and yet not yet part of our theology. We've talked about this. I'm already a citizen of, of heaven, of the heavenly city. I'm, I, I am an, an alien. I am a stranger on earth. My citizenship is now in heaven. But I don't live there yet. I'm on my way there. So it's this already and yet not yet. And so we're the runners and we are running this race. And the festival is going on. And when we come near the end, we're going to be coming in to it. We're going to see it. We're going to look unto Jesus and we're going to finish strong. It's a beautiful image. It's so exciting. The angels are gathered there. It's this magnificent scene in the heavenly city. And it goes on to say, and to God, the judge of all. So God is there. And he's the ultimate judge. And we read this word judge. And again, a lot of times the baggage is, all right, that's scary. <laughs> he's going to be in there. And he's, gonna, he's there. And he's the judge. And he's just kind of being like, all right, you're in, you're out. You're in, you're out. That's not only the thing judges do. Judges vindicate and they say, yes, he's in, and it's final. Yes, he's in, I accept him. Yes, he, he has payment through the blood of Jesus, and he vindicates. So it's really important, again, this under, when we talk about judge, judges don't only condemn. We've got to move away from condemn, and that's the only thing we ever think of. Judges vindicate. The judge stands there, and he says, on the basis of the payment, by the blood of Jesus that was made for him, he's in. He's good. And he's not just standing there waiting to condemn us, but to declare us righteous on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice. And it says, And the judge of all, and to the spirits, the righteous made perfect. I think that's just talking about all the saints who have died. The cloud of witnesses that are already there in the presence of Jesus. They've gathered in the festival. In verse 24, And to Jesus... The mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood 
which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So ultimately to Jesus, we are running to him. We're headed there to Mount Zion. There's this wonderful thing going on. We are enrolled in the books of heaven. We're running our race. They're waiting for us to get there. They're, they're cheering for us. They're celebrating us. And our, and our part of the, uh, of the relay race. But it's all about and it's all because of the blood of Jesus. It was shed once and for all. So think about it in this context. As long as, as long as we're still thinking of this old covenant. And it creeps in. I know it does. It creeps in me. It creeps into you. As long as we're thinking about law, as long as we're continually thinking about judgment, we're still thinking that, that God is out to get us. We're still thinking about competition. We're still thinking about comparison. We're caught up in all this legalism and all this bondage. And it, it's just going to be one wound after another. When you get caught up in that, when you, when you, when you divert or, or go back into that, when you slide back into that because you weren't diligent to find rest, you will just get hurt over and over and over. We're never going to be able to create an environment where people can come in and flourish. This environment of grace that sets people free so that they can run without hindrance. An environment where people can flourish and where people can be accepted and find healing in Christ. Long as we think we have come to Sinai, and that's where the race ends, we are never going to get there because it's never attainable. We will never reach that destination. We can't. We have to remember we've come to Mount Zion. We've come through the grace of God. We've come through the shed blood of Jesus. No matter who you are, no matter what your story is, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've had done to you, none of that matters. The grace of God makes it possible. And it is offered to you. It's not that God is any less holy on Mount Sinai. He's not, he's not less holy. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The difference is that the payment has been made once and for all. This ultimate high priest who made the propitiation, who gave the ultimate sacrifice. Because of him, the veil has been torn. We have access to the new covenant has been invoked or, or, or established forever. So it's not fear and trembling. It's a festival. It's okay to think this. It's what he, this text is saying. This is awesome. Heaven celebrates. As long as we understand that and we begin to, to live that way on earth, we will create an environment where people can flourish. We need to do this together. I'm going to wrap up really fast. Verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth much less will escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So that's perfectly clear. 
That's not good. That's so confusing. What's he talking about? It goes on and on. I mean, especially when you read it so quickly like that. But when God spoke from Mount Sinai, as terrifying as that was, they didn't listen. They didn't listen. They didn't obey. They didn't follow him or remember. That's the generation that didn't make it into the land of promise. They didn't make it into that land. So here's a reminder. They didn't listen. And these were the consequences. They were so severe. We don't want to listen. We, we don't want to follow their mistake. We don't want to follow their, their disobedience. We don't want to miss what God has from us in Mount Zion. We saw the, the results of, of not listening in Mount Sinai. We don't want to see the results of not listening on Mount Zion. It's going to shake it one more time. It's going to be eternal. And only those things, it's just going to be big. You get it? It's, just, it's, it's imagery. But imagine, just, just, again, just imagery. Imagine all the stuff that's temporal in our life. All the things that we are striving for and working for, living for, dedicated to. All these things that are temporary in our life just being shaken and revealed. And only the things that are eternal, only the things that we are living for and, and, and seeking for and valuing and cherishing that are eternal will remain. How much will you have in your bank account? What will you be left with? Will you be empty-handed? Or will you have things to show? Just imagery, but it's, it, it's good to think about that. Verse 28, it says, Therefore, in light of that, because that's true... Since we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken, it's meant to, this, guy, this is meant to be a, a point of encouragement. It is a warning, but it's, it, it ought to be encouraging or strength, not a, not a point of fear. It says, therefore, since we, we, we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So because of what's true, because we have come to Zion, let's be grateful about it. Because we have something that, when shaken, will not flee from us, will not be lost. Something that we can hold on to, something that is incorruptible, that lasts. It's, we have this. It's going to endure forever. Let's, let's show gratitude and actually live like we have citizenship in heaven. Let's actually live that way. Let's actually love that way. Let's actually value things and spend money that way, spend time that way. Let's actually do it because of gratitude. He said that in service is the way we live our lives. We live in such a way that it reflects what we believe is actually true. And this is Hebrews 11 verse 1. It's, it's faith. It's what you believe. Actually believe in it to the degree it changes your life. Not just saying, I agree to that, give intellectual assent, but believing it's true to a point it actually shapes your life. That is true faith. We actually give people a, a glimpse of the kingdom to come. We create an environment where people can flourish. We create an environment where people experience acceptance and kindness and compassion and, and love. And when they're broken and they're wounded 
and then they're needy and they're struggling at the place they can come and they can receive what they need. Do we actually believe we have received that? And if we do, let's live like it. Put your money where your mouth is. The place, guys, where we can, we can come alongside each other and say we are in this together, Bill. We can say we are in this together. We are going to run this race together. I see you're slipping. You're not running real hard. But we are in this together. I'm not going to think less of you. I'm not going to think more of myself. I'm going to view you as a teammate. And I'm going to come. And I'm going to bear the burden with you. And I'm going to help you. Do we actually believe this or not? If you don't, you're not on the team. You're not going to live like that. There's no place for you here. But there is in grace. There is. And we want to help you believe it. We want to help you live it. So what would it look like for you to run hard today? And this week? And what would it look like for you to help others run hard? Think about it. Pray about it. Answer that question. Let's pray. Lord, God, forgive us. Forgive us when we blow it. When we make mistakes, when we fail. Remind us of grace. Help us run to the light room. Bring people into our, into our life who are spiritual, who are walking in the Spirit, who understand grace to help us, to help restore us, to help strengthen our, our wrists, to help strengthen our knees. God, help us live like a team. Help us care for one another and view each other like that. To love each other and serve each other like that. Lord, we ask for your help. This is not something we, that comes easy to us. You know that. You, you understand that. Lord, help us see our need for you. Our desperation for your help to accomplish this. Lord, we desire it. We want to accomplish it. We want to live this way. But we recognize our need for you and we ask for help. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think I went a little long, but I really want us to have opportunity.